Hi, I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of the book Pivot, Turn What's Working for You into What's Next, which comes out with Portfolio Penguin in September of 2016. In this podcast, I talk with peak performers to reverse engineer their most successful career pivots, interview experts on what it takes to be agile in a rapidly evolving economy, and open the kimono on what happens behind the scenes of my book and business. You can learn to capitalize on risk, fear, and uncertainty as the doorways of opportunity. My promise is that you will leave every episode with practical tips, tools, and tactics. For show notes from this episode, visit jennyblake.me slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. I am positively giddy to be interviewing Tom Guariello today. Tom and I met through our mutual friend, Maxine, and have had captivating conversations ever since. (laughs) Tom has his PhD in psychology and has spent most of his career helping individuals and organizations improve the quality of their lives and relationships. 15 years ago, he co-founded a consulting firm called True Talk, Inc., and in 2009, he became a founding faculty member in the Master's in Branding program at New York School of Visual Arts. Where Tom and I really geek out is that over the past few years, he has also become fascinated with the ways in which modern technology, specifically robots, were changing the psychological landscape. And so he recently created and launched a new platform and field of study called RoboPsych, the psychology of human and robot interactions. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Jenny. Pleased to be here. Can you tell us what is RoboPsych and what inspired you to create it? Well, um, let me answer the second question first. Um, as you mentioned, I've been very much uh, uh, and a follower of technology and a user of technology for, well, I mean, I bought my first computer in 1982, so I've... I, I, um, I came from a background that did not include technology, but I got involved through some work relationships. And the next thing you knew, here, here I was learning about technology. And as a psychologist, I became fascinated with the um, the ways that technology uh, become integrated into our lives, how we use technology, and the effects that technologies have on us. And so over the years, I've been very interested in, in using all different kinds, social media, different kinds of technologies. And the more I saw the movement of robots into our real world, the more I began to think about how we were going to use robots and, and in light of our history with them, which has been that robots usually end up doing bad things to us in our, uh, you know, in our fictional histories that have included them. You know, the very first ro- use of the word robot comes from that Czech play, R-U-R, um, in which, you know, the robots uprise. So from the very beginning, we, it's as if we had these, these, this adversarial relationships with robots that, of course, continued through Frankenstein and the Terminator and, you know, Battlestar Galactica. Well, every story that we tell about robots has usually been a dystopian one, a bad one. And I thought that that 
was going to contrast very sharply with the kinds of collaborative relationships that we were going to need to develop with robots in order to use them as we use other technologies in our lives, like automobiles, like uh, televisions, like telephones. You know, we've, we, we had to integrate these technologies into our lives in order to improve our lives. And so the same thing I saw was going to need to happen with robots, but we had these kinds of of barriers to actually integrating them and being comfortable with them. So I started to to think about what would it take to really be comfortable, not just being around robots, but working with robots, using robots as an extension of ourselves. And that's when I started to think about RoboPsych, which was just a way to think about the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral competencies that we need in order to be effective at working with robots. Long answer, but that's what it is. (laughs) Well, that's what I found so interesting. We have overlapping fields of study because I'm looking at how people can pivot and be agile in a rapidly evolving economy. What do you think RoboPsych has to do with that? Um, I think they're very closely related with one another. When you think about, I, I know, of course, that your pivot method very much is one in which a set of um, an approach, you know, a set of ways of thinking and feeling and acting towards your career opens opportunities for people rather than closing them off. RoboPsych is very much, it's, it's kind of a subset of the pivot ideas that, that you've had, Jenny, that, um, you know, using those kinds of emotional, cognitive, and behavioral competencies that will make working with robots successful and focusing on those um, to become an early adopter, if you will, of robots in your life, both in the workplace and in the, in, in the everyday world. Right. I thought it's so interesting how you talked about the fear. And even in our pop culture, we, we both emailed back and forth about the Wired article titled Inspector James Bond Battles His Midlife Crisis. And here again is a narrative about is James Bond obsolete because he's not a drone or a gadget or artificial intelligence. And when it comes to career, similarly, I think there's a lot of fear that people see as robots and automation and outsourcing and AI start to come more and more into our daily lives, even self-driving cars, which I know you talk a lot about. Will there still be jobs for us? Or how do we stay agile and stay well-positioned to capitalize on that opportunity and not become obsolete? It's really easy for us to construct a scenario in which all jobs disappear. You know, the the Oxford study in uh, 2013 that found that um, 47% by their lights uh, of U.S., occupations were vulnerable to being replaced by by technology by robots and self-driving cars we know that the the occup the, the single occupation in America that is uh, the most popular for uh, males is driving truck drivers cab drivers uh, uh, of all kinds all of which become potentially vulnerable to uh, self-driving automobiles so it's easy to construct 
a world in which jobs disappear. I have a hard time envisioning such a world because of the catastrophic social consequences that would um, uh, be an outgrowth of that kind of of world. And so I think what we will do will be to find ways to expand work to deliver important value to customers that can best be delivered through human robot, human technology um, uh, interaction, through, through essentially augmenting human capabilities with robot capabilities. You had a really interesting point along those lines. When I interviewed you for the book, I said, well, what skills do people need? And you told me that's not even the right question because skills can become obsolete. For all we know, typing is going to be obsolete in 10 years. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between skills and mindset and where each plays a role? Yeah, I think the uh, uh, it, it's easy to get focused on skills and say, well, robots are going to be able to take typing. Robots certainly, as uh, natural language recognition uh, becomes uh, better and better, uh, which we know it's going to to improve, then you know the idea that knowing how to do something um, uh, as a safeguard against obsolescence. Uh, it becomes, I think, less and, and less viable. Instead, understanding how, for example, the things that uh, typing conveys, ideas, are, you know, the province of humans. Now, someday, we're told, someday off in the future, robots are going to be able to create the same kinds of ideas that humans do and write the same kinds of stories that humans do. But those, those days are not today. <laughs> we, we, we do not yet have robots who create the kind of stories that, that are engaging to people. That we don't have robots that create... Just take advertising, for example. We know that by... Uh, improving analytics that we can get more and more um, uh, precise in our ability to discover who's watching an ad or who is looking at a particular page, for example, on the internet. And, and robots, in all, in, in all uh, ways of describing what a robot is, you know, Google is a robot in, some, in, in, in my way of thinking about things. So w robots will be able to do those kinds of, of analytics and tell you, well, you know, your visitors, because of the kind of information that we share when we move around the Internet, your, your visitors to your site are in these kinds of demographic categories and we know these about their location and so on and so on and so on. But what those analytics cannot tell you is what sorts of things are likely to be very engaging to these people. Might be able to say, look, the same people who come to your site have also gone to these four sites. What do those four sites have in common that a human would be able to look at them and say, ah, I can tell a story about those four sites and my site that no robot is going to be able to construct, at least not now. And 
improve the way I communicate with people who come to that site. So the mindset of thinking of ways to make what we do more engaging to other people is a, is a human quality that is part of what I think it, it, it means to have an effective robopsych. Use what we learn from robotics and, and, and analytics of all kinds and what robots can do, and then augment that with, and here we have humans augmenting robots, not robots augmenting humans. Augment what the robots can do by adding the kind of creative, empathic, um, insights that only human experience can deliver, at least so far. Right. There were so many key themes in what you just said. Creativity, right brain thinking, synthesizing data, connect, making connections. Funny, too, how you propose it as humans augmenting robots. And a lot of people even say we've reached peak information. We cannot possibly... Our brains are really not structured to to maintain a database of all these facts. And I think that's what's creating so much transformation, even in white-collar fields like law and accounting and radiology, where computers can scan and search and interpret early levels of data that then humans can come in later. But yes. what, what would you advise someone who is in a, prof- a profession or on the cusp of wondering, can... If this can be automated, how do they pivot? How do they transition into something new? I think the, um, the key comes down to creating experiences for people that are engaging for people. And uh, only people know what engaging experiences are like. This is something that's really important for us to remember. Um, uh, there is no algorithm that can capture the sense of someone delivering an outstanding experience to a customer. So when I go into uh, a restaurant and I am greeted by someone who is fill in the blanks for an excellent experience for you in a restaurant, engaging, friendly, warm, knowledgeable, connecting, all of those things that make a restaurant experience go way beyond the 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 products the food even the environment that you're in that's what people can focus on so i suggest that what we focus on is how do we delight other people what what can i do in my job that can that will result in a delightful experience for my customers and then how can I use the kind of, like you say, the information that's available through all the technology that's currently at our fingertips? How can I use that information, that technology, to give me insights into what I can do to make those experiences delightful and engaging for my customers and, bring, and have people come back. It, because what we come back for are extraordinary experiences, not necessarily the um, features and benefits of the products that we're engaging with. Right. And that relationship piece and interaction and empathy, like you said, I love framing it as how do I create delightful experiences? Because that's such a uniquely human 
question, just even this concept of delight as something that we can create and seek out. It was actually my word of the year for 2015. So funny to be capping it off with this conversation. And it's such a, and, and it's, um, uh, focusing on, on the, the, the things that, that make you as an individual happy with an experience of uh, 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 any kind of interaction with uh, a business uh, starts to give you clues about, well, how can I be valuable going forward? No matter what your role is, the the extraordinary uh, performers in any kind of a job are the people who understand that the the functions that they are um, that they perform in their job is the it's it's that it's that core, but that's not what makes people come back. That's not what what creates the kind of loyalty that you know will uh, will get us to to do that thing that you know every business wants anybody to do, which is to recommend the business to their to their friends and their family, right? So. Uh, ha- what are the things that are likely to get people to go, oh, I want to go back there. That's the restaurant I want to go back to. That's the, that's the dentist I want to go back to because his office manager is so terrific. Her hygienist is just the best. Why? Because what they've done is to, is to transcend the technical aspects of the, the encounter, having a meal or getting your teeth cleaned, and um, turn them into something that has human connection and meaning. Um, th- this is this is where the opportunity to go beyond the functions of work, the mechanics of work, which are going to be uh, increasingly automated, to go beyond those to add those dimensions that take that experience with that company, with that individual to the next level of satisfaction. That's what we're going to be freed up to do. And the people who are going to be successful are the ones who can appreciate that that next level is now their job. Their job isn't just to do the things that are, you know, mechanically replicable, but their job is now to take those things to that next level of human connection. It's so true. As you were saying that, I was remembering I had an airport restaurant experience where all the ordering was done on iPads. And on the one hand, while it was convenient, I have to say it was a somewhat hollow experience. I think there was some novelty because it's like, oh, I can order my food on an iPad. But then it quickly turns into this is weird. I feel like I'm sitting in a restaurant graveyard. Like, where are the people? Why? Where's the interaction? And it's so different from a place like the classic Gramercy Tavern in New York, which just has impeccable service and really makes the meal. I mean, I go back there. Yes, the food is great. It pales in comparison to how wonderful every single interaction is, whomever comes by the table. I really love the word hollow that you use there because that really is the difference between what we are. We have an opportunity to fill up the experiences that that we create for others in our business world. And it's not just outside customers. If we think about, you know, internal customer satisfaction and delight that we can 
focus on once we don't have to worry about the 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 mechanics of doing the work. So having an iPad ordering system in a restaurant should free up that restaurant to to provide human connections in in, in and around the meal that transform the meal from being just a hollow forgettable perhaps other meal to into something special and that's that's where the opportunity is going to lie now the economic value of doing such things of going beyond the mechanical basics of work um that's going to take some imagination and we're going to have to um as individuals and, and as a as a uh, a society we're going to have to figure out how to uh, how to do two things. First of all, how to redefine value in terms of human experience so that the things that are important to us are things that make a difference in uh, choices that we make around different businesses. But also, we're going to have to work out the transition. The biggest, um, uh, I see, the, the biggest challenge that we're going to face is in this period of trying to figure out what are we going to do when the first instinct of every business is going to be to automate and by virtue of automating to increase efficiencies and cut costs, right? So uh, that answer is going to be the first answer as we see, for example, in, in Amazon warehouses. You know, the, the, the Kiva robots in Amazon warehouses have replaced what would have been, had they been hired, thousands of workers, and so we we do have to figure out this transition, and I think it's not going to be a short necessarily a short transition. It's probably we're probably looking at I don't know anywhere from ten to thirty years of figuring out how to redefine value in businesses such that people can continue to have meaningful work that contributes to the value of a business um, and, and you know, get through this period because it's, I, 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 it is not going to be easy. I don't mean to, to, uh, to imply that this is going to be, you know, painless and easy. It's going to be a difficult transition. Right. I, I agree. I think when I talk to people, I notice there's a sense of anxiety and it could be simultaneously excitement as well. Some people are at different places in their lives and their careers. But I think everybody has a sense that things are changing and we may have a few years, we may have five years where no one really has to take a hard look and they can keep doing what they're doing. But most people I interviewed for the book, that was not the case. From the year, the, the time I interviewed them to a year later when I was checking their quotes, almost everybody had pivoted or gotten pivoted. Their company was acquired. They were laid off. The company folded. They quit their business. They started a business. Nothing remained the same. I mean, there were, there were only a handful of stories that were the same. And I think you're absolutely right. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but the opportunity is to acknowledge that this is going on, acknowledge that there's anxiety, and now ask, okay, let's get creative. And that is the uniquely human trait. Get yeah, creative, have imagination, like you said. Yeah, it's it, uh, it, the the idea of you know having a pivot attitude, the way you frame it up, I think is certainly um, 
uh, a necessary condition for people to be successful going forward in that even if your job is not uh, taken over by robots, even if even if what happens is just, oh, your everyday acquisition or, you know, right. just your just your everyday downsizing or just, you know, having nothing to do with robots. The fact is, we know that in in uh, the, in the last century, people worked for uh, longer times in one job than they ever will again. We will we will never have people who get the thirty year watch, uh, or or there might be two of them in a company that get the thirty year watch. But it used to be, you know, that was pretty much what everybody looked forward to. You know that that's not the case any longer, regardless of robots or no. Um, that your ability as a uh, uh, and it's not just you know work that you think is. Uh, um, easily, you know, done by robots. We know now that uh, high skill jobs are just as vulnerable to being replaced by automation as are, you know, dull, dirty, and dangerous jobs. So uh, it it every it behooves everybody to adopt a mindset that is flexible and that focuses on their strengths and the key experiential aspects that differentiate great experiences in what they do from mediocre, from poor experiences. Right. One of the things I admire most about you is your experimental nature and your openness. I have to say on the subject of mechanized things and delight. I got a great smile today when we were confirming this podcast and all of a sudden I got an email from who else? Amy, your artificial intelligence assistant. (laughs) And just for everyone on the call, this is the URL. We'll put it in the show notes. It's x.ai. I'm still on the wait list, but Tom got total street cred once again, not that you needed any more from me, but that you already were, of course, had your own Amy. And the email said Tom to me, it said, Tom, let me know this meeting will be today at 3 p.m. Additionally, Tom has let me know this meeting will take place over Skype. I'll <laughs> go ahead and send out an invite. And then I got an invite. I mean, this is wild. This is what tell me, how does this work? And that's wild to me that that was all AI <laughs> sent from your inbox. Yeah, it um as you say, I do like to experiment with new technologies. And as soon as I saw that Amy was, uh, was out there and Amy is an AI assistant and the, the mechanics of using the, the, the mechanics of using the system are, are very simple. You, once you get this AI assistant set up and you can have, you know, you, you can, you name your assistant or you name the gender, you know, you, you choose the gender of your assistant and then your assistant has a name and your assistant has an email address. And so whenever you set up any appointment, you simply CC, um, Amy, uh, and Amy sees, reads the email, sees what the particulars of the appointment or meeting are, puts them on a calendar, sends out an invite to all the people confirming, and will manage communication back and forth with the participants in the meeting. So, for example, if somebody says, no, can't meet at 1230, how about 130, Amy will then 
uh, uh, inform me of the change, tell me that she's made the change if I have time free on my calendar, if I've instructed her to be able to do that. So it's, you know, it's still very early days for these kinds of technologies, but I like to to, to be in on the early days to see what it feels like more than anything else to use them and to integrate them into my you know daily world. It's so interesting how we have our own little AI families. You and I both have Amazon's Echo, which her name is Alexa. Yeah. And she's my new roommate. Oh, she just woke up. She's on, she's on my desk. You, you say her name. She's ready. <laughs> I know. So we have Alexa. I was teaching my grandma how to use the Hey Siri feature where it's ambient. She doesn't even have to touch her phone. And now Amy. It's like we have a whole mini team of AI assistants and that we name them and we really, what do you think is important from a psychological perspective in them having names? Well, I think it, it it's such a natural um, aspect of our uh, humanity, of our evolutionary history to know who is it that I'm talking to. Everyone that I talk to has to have an identity and that identity is, is, certainly is connected with a name and a personality and functions. And, you know, we just take all those things for granted about the people that we interact with. And so designers of AI systems design in the familiar aspects of, of other people to help us to adopt the, the technology. So, you know, Amy, Amy uh, takes on business language in the way she writes emails. And once again, this is a, a, a reflection of where the technology has gotten to. We have, we have uh, uh, bots now that write news stories and uh, uh, routine news stories about, you know, quarterly results for businesses or sports stories that are written by robots that are essentially uh, impossible to distinguish from the same stories written by people. So the, 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 the proficiency with using language that is focused on the domain that the robot is working in is important. And then that the more of a personality that the, uh, the AI can take on, depending on its function, certainly an assistant like Amy, you want to have a friendly but still business-like demeanor. And so designers are now working through all of those kinds of uh, um, variables in creating their systems. I, I interviewed a fellow named uh, Ben Brown uh, last week on my podcast, and uh, Ben is the co-founder of um, of Howdy, the Howdy AI, which is a, um, uh, a bot that operates within Slack the 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 new communication framework that many companies are trying to replace multiple communication channels like texting and email and voicemails and slack is becoming a pretty popular way for teams to communicate and howdy is a bot that lives within slack and will take care of administrative duties for your team like setting up meetings like doing pre-meeting planning uh for for the team so for example if there's a check-in 
uh, every week on a project and every member of the team goes around and does the normal check-in. Well, what Howdy will do will be to go around and ask people, what's your check-in? What's your check-in? What's your check-in? Gather the information from people and then present that aggregated uh, summary to all the participants, thereby saving a lot of time in the meeting itself and so on. So we, we again, early days of seeing how to bring automation into our daily lives um, in order to cut out some of what we know to be uh, sometimes drudgery work that we we just don't want to have to deal with, but we don't have any other way around it now. So um, it, it's it is, and in order to be successful at using those, it takes a kind of openness to experimenting, as you said, and uh, a playfulness. There's there's no other way I I think to put it, but a playfulness in that you have to have a light touch. When you're working with new technologies like this, if you become, you know, overly uh, uh, concerned about, you know, am I really going to be able to get this? Is it going to be, you know, what's going to happen? You, you you sort of lose that deftness that makes working with new technologies um, uh, fun and also leads to more productive adoption of them. Absolutely. It's so important this willingness to learn and fumble through something. I was explaining that to someone the other day that uh, the iPhone didn't exist 10 years ago. So it's been 10 years that we've all been pushing buttons, learning how to swipe, learning how to zoom in and zoom out. This wasn't a skill we were born with. Kids today now pretty much are, but we've learned it. And I've noticed that some people take it personally when there's a new technology or a type of gadget and they think, I don't know how to use it. I'm frustrated and they put it down and yes. it's awkward for all of us. But like you said, there's a certain willingness to let it be awkward. I was teaching myself audio editing. I don't know the first thing about it. It was so awkward. It took me so long, but actually I was really glad when I made it over some of those initial learning humps and I'm not ever going to probably become a professional audio engineer, but there's a way to have fun in the process a little bit while acknowledging, yes, it is awkward and these skills aren't going to come overnight. That's part of the enjoyment. Yeah, that's, um, that's very important to be able to let yourself be a beginner. Um, it's, and as we get older, you know, we become less comfortable being beginners because somehow we believe that as we, as we become more proficient in, in, uh, in let's say our vocations, that somehow that's supposed to mean that we that 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 we're proficient. Period. That we know how to do things. And in fact, you know, all of us are beginners about something. Like all of us are novices about something. And and so audio editing, for example, you if you did not have the kind of mindset that made it possible for you to say, well, I don't know, I'm going to try it and see what, how, you know, how I pick it up. And then when I run into obstacles, I'm going to figure out how to get past them. That kind of confidence in your ability to point to point, navigate through a new situation is absolutely critical to, to being successful in adopting all the new things that are coming at us all the time. 
Right. I can see the other side of it, which is sometimes, and I fall into this too, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I'll think to myself, it would be really cool if I could learn coding. Maybe I'll go do a boot camp in New York. And then I think, oh, but there are people have been doing it 10 years and uh, I, so it'd be so inefficient. I might as well just continue hiring developers. Let's say I know front-end web design, but I don't know PHP or any programming languages. And I actually struggle with that, that on the one hand, I think it would be fun. And on the other, there's no, there's no way I could catch up with people who have been doing it 20 years. Maybe there is, maybe I shouldn't sell myself short, but particularly when it comes to career changes, I even know, let's say former stock traders where it's all being automated. And in order to work in a hedge fund now, they want you to have coding knowledge and database skills. That's new. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a problem in that, as you said, in regard to, to audio editing, you're probably never going to become a sound engineer. So the question is, do you need to become a sound engineer in order to use audio editing in a way that will be beneficial and productive for you? Or will competent be good enough for your purposes? If, if that's the case, then, you know, by all means, go ahead and, you know, spend the time in learning audio editing. If, on the other hand, the only way that you could actually benefit substantially from learning coding is by learning how to write Python and, you know, PHP, then, you know, is the investment of time and energy best spent here or is it best spent elsewhere? So those are hard questions. Um, but I think using, using your expectations about what, what am I trying to accomplish by learning this skill um, uh, will help you to calibrate just how much time and, and energy uh, is worth investing. That's such a great distinction, that threshold between does competence work and serve the point, the function, or do you really need to be excellent? In which case, you're absolutely right. That might be the deciding factor right there. This reminds me about the conversation around social media. This is another thing that overwhelms me a lot and a lot of people I know where we feel like, oh my goodness, how can I possibly keep up? I even have a public-facing platform. It's I'm coming up on my 10-year anniversary of that. And yeah. I don't always want to try every new, latest, greatest Periscope, Twitter, this, that, the other. I'm even fatigued from Facebook and Twitter, the two basics, not to mention I don't do Instagram. And and I'm this is my career. And I know other people too feel like, well, am I supposed to just jump on every social media product that gets released? And at what point is it diminishing returns on your actual core business activities and careers? What's your take on that? That's a, it, it's once again, it becomes a really difficult uh, decision to make. And I think you're um, uh, being able to distinguish between, you know, the latest greatest shiny object and the things you really need to master in order to be successful, that kind of judgment is really important. I, I, I think um, uh, chasing after every shiny new object is, uh, uh, can be a, a, a serious distraction from delivering value with the 
with technologies and with, um, uh, and, you know, in, in the case of robots that we're talking about, you know, you don't have to become a roboticist. You don't have to learn how to construct robots or write uh, code for robots. Using robots in your work situation effectively and learning how to be the, I, 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 I humorously talk about becoming a robot whisperer, you know, someone, <laughs> Love that. someone who can, who, who understands robots the way many people understand their pets and can communicate with them and, you know, can have a productive relationship with them. Um, without having to know, you know, too much about, uh, you know, veterinary medicine or, you know, too much technically about, uh, uh, in this case, robots can be a very, it it is, I think, the right, the right. It's probably a a sweet spot of being able to productively use um, the systems without having to be overwhelmed by the kind of technical challenges that a field like robotics uh, offers. So what does it take to become a robot whisperer? It becomes um, uh, the number, I I think the number one skill is an openness to learning about what the robot can do and how you can enable it to do the things that it can do. So when you're working, uh, like take Amy, for example, I'm just learning about what Amy can do for me as um, an artificial intelligence assistant. I'm going to experiment now with some things with Amy. I'm going to see whether Amy can write some correspondence for me. I want to see what other kinds of things Amy, I can offload to Amy. So I'm going to experiment with her and I'm going to experiment with her. <laughs> Listen to that. I'm going to experiment. Her name is Amy. So I'm going to experiment hey, that's with why her. You're the robot whisperer. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to experiment with her and try to, to become very familiar with essentially her dialect, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like learning a new software system. You know, when you, when you get a new piece of software, the the first thing you're trying to do is to figure out, well, where's the, where's the stuff that helps me to create something new in this, in this application? Where's the stuff that helps me to find what I've already created in this application? Where's the stuff that helps me to send what I've created to somebody else in a different format, let's say? So all of those um, uh, constituents of what we know to be good software that we've learned about, and that's just kind of all, you know, deeply embedded in our way of using software. We don't have a list of, you know, things I need to master in the new software system. They're just kind of there when we start to use it. Like, oh, where's the create new stuff? Where's the, you know, where's the find the stuff I was working on the other day? You know, those are characteristics. Same with with robots. They are going to have ways to activate them. They are going to have ways of perceiving. They are going to have ways of processing. They are going to have ways of communicating back. So becoming familiar with the idiosyncrasies, what I call the dialect of the particular robot system, is is you know how you become familiar with it. And the more familiar with it you become, the more capable 
you will be of integrating it productively into your, into your life. It reminds me of the site, let me Google that for you, where even working at Google, people yeah. used to email a lot of us who worked there, friends and family saying, how do I do this? How do I do this thing? And just even learning how to get better at searching on Google, not to mention using Siri and all these other commands, like you're saying, that learning how to ask the question to AI or robot is, is actually a big piece of it, how to structure a query that strips out most of the unnecessary words, ideally, though they're getting much smarter and better at it, and understanding how, what inputs to give to get the output that you seek. That's exactly what I, I, I use the Google example all the time when talking to people about these things in that we had to learn, Google had to teach us how to become Googlers, how to, how to Google things, right? We didn't know it. We had, to, we had to learn it. Well, how did Google teach us that? Well, it taught us that by delivering more relevant answers more quickly when we posed questions in one way rather than another way, right? So we were being reinforced from a learning theory standpoint. We were being reinforced to ask questions this way. Oh, fewer words, not more. Uh, cut out all the nonsense. Just use the, the words that will make this a distinctive and a question that you're asking. Oh, okay, great. I get it now. It took all those years, but now I know how to do it intuitively, right? We, most of us who have used Google for any period of time are pretty good. Now, there's all those delimiters and all those other kinds of things that, you know, if not within how many words and all those other, the arcane aspects of Google that only the experts know. Not those of us who are just merely competent at at Googling, but there are people who are Google whisperers. They are experts, <laughs> right, in, right, in yeah. Googling. And, and so your, your motivation to become the most proficient robot user that anybody have, has, has ever seen becomes a, 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 a vocational differentiator, for for people and it's going to just become more and now remember not only are you going to have to learn how to do these things but your colleagues are going to have to learn how to do them too so given your background jenny as training and teaching people how to do things i think we see that there's a pretty uh, open field here for people who can teach other people how to use robots too right one thing you mentioned during the social media conversation was looking ahead and having discernment about where things are heading and what might be useful and what might not be. And even this term futurist only entered my radar a year or two ago, that there are actually people who study where things are going and make predictions. Do you think that everyone has to be get better at becoming futurists in order to know where to invest their time and attention? Or are there shortcuts or signals that they can piggyback on? Well, I think, um, like Yogi Berra said, you know, making predictions is hard, especially about the future. <laughs> I love Yogi uh, Berra. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard. It is hard to, to, to forecast, um, what's going to happen in the future. I, I think realistically speaking, looking at your professional domain and, uh, looking at, at what you see, now starting to happen 
will give you your best indicator of how quickly you need to learn how to integrate new technologies, new robotics into your work world. So, for example, if you are a, a lawyer, we know that your world is already deeply affected by robotics. We know that artificial intelligence is being used more and more to perform jobs that used to be done not just by paralegals, but by, you know, uh, novice attorneys as well. So that's a field in which if you're not appreciating how much your profession is going to change uh, now, you better hurry because that's that that one is not 20 years off. That's not 10 years off. That's that's five years off. And not that you're going to be replaced as an attorney, but how the, the things that you used to be able to bill for, you know, discovery and document review and other things, they're they're going to now be conducted by robots, which means you have to figure out some other way to add value. So look at your domain. On the other hand, if if you are a um my wife is an occupational therapist uh occupational therapists are probably not going to be replaced by robots anytime soon because there's a tremendous amount of um uh the high touch angle of of uh, a field like occupational therapy is very important it's crucial to enabling people to gain to regain functionality that they've lost as a result of you know an in, uh, an illness or an injury um, so I, you might not be worried about being replaced by a robot if you're an occupational therapist but what you might be looking at is how can i adopt robotics into my practice so that i can help more clients by using robots who are going to be able to do some of what we do as occupational therapists, but can't do so much else of what we do. So it's having that attitude of, you know, what is already happening, what is likely to happen on the, on the very near, in the very near term, and what looks like it's going to be a little further out, which gives you then the opportunity to think about all those value-adding kinds of activities that we talked about earlier. Right. It's so, that's so fascinating because the pivot method and the biggest mistake that I made when pivoting was not looking at what was already working, what was already right under my feet. And it's really interesting to hear you frame this technology conversation and robots around look at the transformation that's occurring right now that actually if we open our eyes and we, we probably feel it on a visceral sense, you know, I say in the introduction to my book, uh, this is the boiling frog. My friend Scott uses that analogy mm -hmm. that the water is getting hotter and hotter and we haven't yet jumped out of the pot, but I think we can feel the discomfort. And some people have jumped out of the pot and they're on to new things. But that to look at, I mean, that's just great advice to not try and look so far out that it's debilitating, but to say, what am I seeing already? And how do I want to adjust or complement what I'm doing with technology? It's very difficult to look far out. Uh, I, uh, the um, most most predictions, you know, about anything over well depend uh, depends on the domain. You know, the reason that weather forecasts are are uh, uh, a seven day forecasts is that beyond seven day forecasts, nobody knows what the weather's going to be. <laughs> 
They just can't, you can't predict more than seven days. Within seven days, they're pretty good now. We have pretty good models that give us the dynamics of weather systems in such a way that we can say, well, it looks like four days from now, this is going to happen because we know how weather works. Um, uh, other, it's, but beyond seven days, we don't know how weather works. It just, too, there are too many, there's too much uh, dynamism in the system to be able to predict out. Similarly, if you're in an occupation, you do know that a year from now, again, attorneys, a year from now, are there going to be more things that robots are going to be able to do that lawyers do today? Yes, there will be more. Uh, will there still be things that they can't do? Yes, there will be. Well, okay. There's the next point-to-point navigating chart, if you will. You know, uh, uh, Understand that and then see what happens a year from now. People can be uncomfortable with looking at things in those kinds of chunks of time, but I think it's more realistic than saying, oh, well, 20 years from now, I know everything. No, we don't know anything about 20 years from now. Right. So that that reminds me, and this is a big philosophical question around all this, which is some people say, listen, this is the economy that cried wolf. Every time there's a new piece of technology, we get all antsy and upset about it. And we say that jobs are going away and we create a big crisis and then it ends up being fine. But then other people say, no, this time is different. Look how much automation is already happening. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, I... I do think that we are about to see another of these major inflection points in the way work gets done, much as we saw uh, with the automation of agriculture and of manufacturing. I, I think what we saw was that while we continued to have jobs Many jobs disappeared. What I know we're going to see is tasks being replaced. So whether or not lawyers disappear, that's not a question for me. No, lawyers are not going to disappear. Some of the tasks that lawyers do are definitely going to disappear. Disappear meaning being done by robots. So I think that this time is different in the sense that we've never had the level of skill being replaced by automation robotics uh, in before that we have now and that we are going to see. So we're used to seeing manual labor, dull, dirty, dangerous jobs disappear uh, to automation. What we're not used to seeing are these higher skill jobs uh, be affected, not disappear, but be affected by robotics. So I think it's different in that sense. It's not different, I think, in the sense that as as a society, we have created an economic and social structure that relies on people working to have money to be able to purchase things to keep other industries alive. And so unless we figure out some new social and economic model, I don't think we're going to try to scrap what we've done uh, so far uh, uh, socially and just replace it with nothing. So I, 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 you know, I think we're going to be making lots and lots of modifications, but in some sense, 
we will find ways to replace the work activities that we're doing now both for both economic reasons and for social reasons. We do not want millions of people not having productive lives and working in ways that will not just keep them busy, but keep them engaged and, and have their lives be meaningful. So I have a lot of faith in our ability to create new ways of doing that. That doesn't mean that the the road isn't going to be bumpy from here to there. That's a great distinction between task changing versus roles changing, that we may still have lawyers, but the tasks that they do will be different. And that's, as I think, a really important one and very interesting. So as we approach the end of our time together, I would kick myself if I didn't ask you about my two favorite shows of late that I know you've watched too. I think both of us have watched both seasons twice through, and that's Humans on AMC and Mr. Robot on USA Today. Both are very different, but for yeah. robot-obsessed and AI-obsessed people, they're, they're fascinating, particularly humans, which you turned me on to, where every family has a synth, a synthetic human robot that looks real, sounds real, and helps with all these house chores. What do you think it is about the zeitgeist that is creating these shows? And I know they've existed, and books like these have existed for a long time, but humans was very powerful for how kind of really realistic it was, but also how the psychology of, of having a synth in the family unit, how that changes people and relationships. And I'd just love to hear some quick thoughts that you have after watching these. Well, they, I, I certainly, I've, I certainly enjoyed both of them uh, a lot. And as you say, they were two very different shows. Humans w- was um, uh, fascinating to me in that this uh, very humanoid uh, robot, a synth, was introduced into into a family and immediately what you see are the family dynamics playing themselves out around how to integrate this robot into the family's life. So, you know, uh, the mother in this family is an attorney. She's away on a, on a case and uh, her being away prompts her husband, who is overwhelmed by household chores, to go ahead and get a synth. And and now the synth comes in, and the synth is, no surprise, better at doing the household chores than the mother is, or than anybody in the family is. So now certain, suddenly we have jealousy, we have um, sexual attraction on the part of a teenage boy to this very attractive looking female synth who is uh, around the home. Uh, not too many spoilers here, but, uh, he's not the only one sexually attracted to the synth. And so all of the, all the possibilities of having a truly sentient, interactive, non-human family member 24-7, the challenges that that uh, presented to the family, the way they came to terms with those challenges was to me a very interesting depiction of, fictional depiction of the kinds of situations that you can imagine happening in a world where these kinds of advanced artificial intelligent agents are 
commonplace. And and that's for me, well, you know, is that 30 years off? Is that 20 years? Is it 50? I don't know. But th- there is some time in the future, I believe, when these kinds of um of systems are available to us the way cars are available to us, the way any technology is available to us. Mr. Robot, on the other hand, was a, is a very different kind of story in that it is the story of the, the impact of having tremendous power concentrated in businesses and the effects that hackers can have on those very powerful businesses and what those, what of the, how those effects ripple out to the whole world. Um, uh, ro- you, uh, Mr. Robot is, you know, the depiction of a, uh, a hacker who is uh, a troubled young man in many ways, brilliant and his group of, uh, of cohorts who are trying to do something that, you know, we've seen, Edward Snowden do and we've seen others do, which is to reveal the the manipulation of large systems, monetary systems, in, in the case of Mr. Robot, debt, right? The the uh the objective in Mr. Robot is to wipe out all personal debt for people, um, which you know, the Occupy Wall Street people probably would have resonated with had they had the kind of uh uh uh, technological prowess that we see uh, Elliot having in uh, uh, in Mr. Robot. So uh, uh, a fascinating story of kind of I, I actually I think of Mr. Robot more uh, as a now story than okay. a future story uh, uh, because those issues are really right you know as they say ripped from the headlines. <laughs> so true. It's so true, and even cars being hacked. And so I think the hacking piece of it speaks to our fear around the security of our data and cybersecurity in general, identity theft, and then humans was so interesting about the psychology of integrating these intelligent machines. And a self-driving car got pulled over the other day. The the Google offices for self-driving cars are in my mom's backyard, actually over the fence. Uh There's just a little wood fence that separates them. And when I was home visiting last, there was, I was at a stoplight and do, 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 comes the self-driving car turning left. And it was so wild to be on the road and just see it. And it, and it not be, they didn't open house day that we went to, too. But just Uh in that moment, my feeling, and for me, it was delight, but I can imagine the fear and concern and questions and curiosity and the whole mix of emotions that I think humans really nailed around starting to see these things in our everyday lives. It's, uh, as you say, one was pulled over the other day uh, for driving too slow. <laughs> right, was, I left that out. <laughs> which is yeah, it was funny. going 20, 25 and yeah. a 35. And, you know, a police officer pulled the, pulled the car over. And um, what I, I read the police report and the police report said, you know, there is an obstruction. Uh, uh, th- there's a law on the books in California about obstructing other traffic, basically by driving too slow. So, this is where Google needs to learn how to integrate its self-driving cars into the world more effectively. They've taken a very conservative approach so far. It makes perfect sense to me. You don't want your 
cars doing 45 and a 35, but likewise, you probably don't want it really routinely doing only 25 and a 35 either. So how will they adjust? How will they be, you know, make these systems more uh, comfortable for us to live with on a daily basis? Because that's what we're going to be doing. Right. I wonder, did the report say, did the, did the self-driving car know that it was being pulled over like when it saw the flashing lights, are they smart enough to know that, or did they... I don't know? Okay, I don't I know. know. I, didn't see, like... I, I don't know whether somebody had to go into override mode at that <laughs> moment know. or not. That's that's a good question. Yeah, because I know right now Googlers are sitting. There's a, it's like a bucket seat. There's not even a steering wheel in these things. Right. And there's two people sitting, almost like on a bench on the back. And what what was so funny was the one I saw. The girl was half asleep, yawning and texting. And I was like, well, yeah. hey, at least she's not driving, right? Because she was bored. There's nothing for her to do, really. And so they're doing these test drives. And I, I do wonder if that car knew it was being pulled over. And then the look on the cop's face. I mean, I would have liked to see that. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, for oh, sure. There's no for driver sure. here. <laughs> oh, well, Tom, I could talk to you about these topics all day. I'm really grateful that you're doing what you're doing with uh, RoboPsych and your fantastic podcast. Thank you so much for being on this one. Where can people find you if they want to keep in touch? Well, thanks so much, Jenny. I, um, uh, I of course, uh, RoboPsych.com. Um, and you can find there the uh, my newsletter, the RoboPsych newsletter, also the podcast, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. I'm on Twitter at, at Tom Guariello, which is a lot of letters, but uh, I'm sure Jenny will have them all in the, in the show notes. Uh, and also on Facebook, uh, uh, similarly also uh, Tom Guariello there. So um, that's where I live online. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yes, I will post all the links to what we talked about today in the show notes at jennyblake.me slash podcast. Tom, thank you so much, and huge thanks to everybody who's here listening. Thanks again, Jenny. Enjoyed it a lot. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Pivot Podcast. To learn more and get in touch, visit JennyBlake.me, where I blog about systems at the intersection of mind, body, and business. Or find me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. And remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? <laughs>